So it's kind of metaphorical, but we need to be running after God's heart. We need to be running hard after it in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls, in everything we do. If you have your copy of God's Word, I would ask you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 14. Kind of turning a corner after Jesus did a lot of teaching in the temple court and shot the Sadducees and the Pharisees and all the scribes down in their attempts to trip him up. And then he talked on the Mount of Olives to his disciples about his return and what that's going to look like. And now we're going to go into the, the moment of the passion, the moment of Christ's sacrifice. I preached this actual story about three years ago out of the book of John. It's the same story, just different setting and, I mean, different author and kind of a different way he puts it in here. And I'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, what would you think of if someone said, what is your greatest act of love you've ever done? No, you don't have to share. I'm not going to do that to you. And then you need to also think about what's your least act of love. What is the most unloving thing you've ever done to someone? We all tend to have those up and downs. We tend to have one of each at least. What we think is our best love and what we think is our worst moment. But in this passage today, we're going to see very two distinct acts of both of those things. Very, I mean, so far apart, they're not even in the same universe. Since Jesus' birth, men have been trying to kill him. Herod the Great killed all these babies in Bethlehem because he thought he could catch the Messiah in those group of babies. Men have been chasing him, trying to kill him. He had to go to Egypt for 12 years or 11 years, maybe 10 years. But men have been trying to kill him. From Herod the Great to now the Judaism, Judaism leaders here in Jerusalem. But we need to realize that Jesus' death was part of God's plan, part of Jesus' mission. Sometimes we look at it as a tragedy, but the real tragedy is those who facilitated it and never saw the Messiah in Jesus Christ. But God was not going to let anybody do it on their timetable. It was all in accordance with his plan, all in accordance with his timing. Because Jesus has already told his disciples three times plainly, I will die, I will be tried, I will die, I will be buried, and I will rise. He told them three times very clearly like that. And they're all still scratching their heads, wondering what the heck he's talking about. And then he's hinted at it a couple of times as well. And they still don't get it. But Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister to Lazarus, does get it to some degree. And we're going to see that in this story. She acts out her knowledge about Jesus in a very monumental way. So we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11 of Mark chapter 14. Follow along as I read this. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why was this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. And Jesus replied, leave her alone. 
Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. And I thank you for the way Mark contrasts the hatred for your son and the love for your son. May we see that in our own hearts today and see how we can love you more and hate the world less. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Mark does something here that he's done in several places in his gospel. It's called intercalation, but that's just a fancy term for a sandwich flashback. Okay, He gives you a present-day event starting, and then he flashes back some distance in time to another event, and then comes back to the present event and finishes out. So what you have here is, is a, a portrayal of that between what's going on with the scribes and the Pharisees and Judas and what went on with Mary. Mark portrays these events in a way to contrast the hate of some and the love of one. These verses highlight the object of worship in two distinct people, Judas and Mary. So what motivated the love of one and the hatred of the other? Well, the object of one's love is really the, the purpose, is really the difference. It's really the motivator. What is your love focused on? The object of one's love is the motivator. We see dis, two distinct objects of love in this passage. First of all, self-love hates Jesus. Self-love hates Jesus. We're going to talk about the hate first, and we'll get the bad news out of the way first. So we're going to talk about verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 through 11. Let me reread 1 and 2 for you. It starts here. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. We're going to look at the actions of self-love here that attempted to interfere with Jesus' mission. Just understand... There's hate in the air. There's hate swirling around in Jerusalem for Jesus. The movie The Passion, although there's a lot of errors in terms of Scripture in it, it's still a good movie. But one of the, the most moving parts to me was when he was being tried and how much they hated Jesus. Was, I think it was a, a very accurate portrayal of what's going on right here in verses 1 and 2. One, verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11, they're kind of in the present time. They're following right after this Olivet Discourse about his return. It is still Wednesday evening of Passion Week. And at some point, Matthew indicates in his account of this, that this was going on while Jesus was teaching about his second coming on the Mount of Olives. But I want you to look at their hatred for Jesus and their attempt 
to conceal their actions, okay? They use, it uses the word cunning in this particular translation. Others use stealth. Others use unnoticed. Others use clever. They didn't want any risk when they arrested Jesus and killed him. They didn't want to risk anything. They didn't want any consequences to come on them. So they were waiting. They were looking for an opportune time. See, their purpose was to arrest Jesus and kill him. Why? Be, there's a myriad of reasons why, but it boils down to this. It boils down to their hatred for his exposure of their evil hearts. He's, he's proved it over and over again. He's cleared the temple twice, got rid of their money laundering schemes in the temple courts. They love their attention getting positions. They love to be you know, praised in the marketplace and everybody saying, oh, there's the rabbi. They loved the power that they wielded over the people with their traditions and their false teaching. They loved their prestige. <laughs> they, they would not even humble their hearts for the sake of Jesus' truth. They rejected the gospel. So they schemed. They schemed to arrest him by some ambiguous way. They were looking for something that, that was just ambiguous, they could hide it. They could kind of declare plausible deniability. And then they were going to kill him for it, whatever it was. But they, they said, let's don't do this during the festival. And here's why. The population of Jerusalem tripled during the Passover festival. The eight days from Passover to the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the population would soar, some estimates near 300,000, from a population of maybe fifty to 75,000 during normal times. So... The people that were coming in were probably people from Galilee who loved Jesus, by the way, and other places. There was, they would come in. And so the, the scribes and the, and, the, and the priests, they're afraid of the people. So they're like, let's wait. Let's pause. Let's don't do this until after the festival, until till there's back to a little small crowd in Jerusalem, not this humongous crowd. The problem was their plan was they thought was flawless and safe because their hatred, they had calmed themselves down. Their hatred was on what I would call low simmer. It was just barely boiling there under the surface. Until we get to verse 10 and 11. So look down there, verses 10 through 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him, to betray Jesus. Judas made him an offer they could not refuse. Judas Iscariot, he will always be remembered as the one who betrayed the Son of God to evil men. It was a very notorious act, infamous his infamous act still holds the worst treasonous act ever. I think it's worse than anything we've ever heard for traitors of, of, of a country or a government. Why would he do this? He's benefited from Jesus' ministry. I mean, for three years, he's seen the love of Jesus handed out all over Palestine. He's seen some incredibly great things. He saw Jesus create enough food to feed 5,000. Then he saw him create enough food to feed 4,000. He saw that. He had benefited from those things. But, but there was one thing he wanted that he didn't get by following Jesus for three years. He wasn't wealthy. He wanted more money in his pocket. 
He was greedy. He had been made poor by wandering around in the wilderness with this itinerant preacher and this potential posing revolutionary, he thought. And even John 12 tells us in John's account, he tells us he stole from the money bag. The disciples' money bag that they used for their survival, he stole from it. Judas was more concerned of, over, about gain over the gospel. That's Judas's problem. And you know what? I believe when he got scolded, because John 12 talks about that, Judas is the one who was complaining about Mary's, Mary's gift. I believe when Judas got scolded by Jesus, that was the straw that broke the proverbial camel's back. That's, that's almost every gospel portrays him shortly after that, going to the scribes and the Pharisees to portray Jesus. He couldn't handle that rebuke. And Luke even says at that point in time, Satan entered into Judas. Which again confirms the fact that Judas was never a believer in Jesus Christ. He liked Jesus, I think. He, he liked the attention it gave him. But believers cannot be possessed by demons. That's just a little side note for you. But Judas was on the front lines of the greatest event that was about to happen. But his self-love lost it. He lost that opportunity. His offer changed the mind of the leaders. They decided, okay, this guy is on the inner circle. He's going to betray him to us. He's going to find the perfect time. And it afforded them a chance to do it out of sight, is what Luke says, when it gave them the opportunity to do it out of sight. And I think it also gave them plausible deniability. Then it would all be Judas's fault. It'd all be on Judas's head. Because Judas was greedy. He was disgruntled. He was unaccepting of Jesus' mission to die for the souls of men. He saw Jesus as a defeatist. Why does he keep talking about his death? You know, we need a, we need a revolutionary that's going to lead us to victory over Rome. Judas loved himself more than anything. Just like the Jewish leaders who he was wheeling and dealing with. God used the evil hearts, though, of these men to execute the betrayal the arrest, the trial, the sentence, and the death on Passover day of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God used it. They were going to wait, but by prophecy it was supposed to happen on Passover. And they, they followed right along with God's dealings. Their scheme was, was God's tool for the salvation of humanity. They willingly refused it over their self-love. Their self-love kept them bound. 21 years ago, 19 men hijacked four airliners to commit acts that they deemed selfless but was actually selfish. Their flawed faith in a false god killed nearly 3,000 people because they hated a way of life more than life itself. Self-love causes humans to do despicable things to one another. We're always trying to defend ourselves, take up for ourselves, stand up for ourselves. But in the name of our own ideals, we'll murder somebody because it's expedient. It's convenient. Judas and these Jewish teachers convinced themselves that Jesus needed to be killed. Get him out of the way. He's just causing so many problems. He's causing so many problems. They wanted power. And they wanted money. Both of them. 
What they didn't realize is that was God's sovereign plan was the real reason they succeeded in killing Jesus. God used their self-love to show the world selfless love. Listen to Peter's sermon at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 and verse 36. Listen to what he tells these men eventually. Some of these men probably were in these meetings with Judas. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that did, God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Talk about condemning. Peter went right for the jugular on that. And the good news is, is that crowd repented. That crowd confessed their sin. That crowd, 3,000 people, got saved that day. God's love for us was demonstrated by the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, by his plan, not ours, not theirs. Self-love was used by God to bring this about. You know, in some cases, when we think about evil men or bad men, as we might call them, uh, we can convince ourselves that hating them is a good thing, that hating their plotting and hating them is good. Many of us probably rejoiced over the death of Hitler, if we were alive then, or Saddam Hussein, his capture and execution, Osama bin Laden. We probably all rejoiced a little bit. Some of us did. Some of us thought he deserves it. But I'm going to tell you something. God never calls us to hate people. Never. He never calls us to hate people. For any reason. He calls us to hate sin. Hate the sin. Hate their actions. Their sinful actions. Yes, but not them. Because we need to remember, if grace changed us, it can change anybody. If grace changed you, it can change them. They're never outside God's ability to save And sometimes the the bottom line, most of our hatred and dislike or disdain for people is motivated by our love of ourself. Sometimes we feel vindicated or affirmed when we dislike someone for their positions or choices or sins. We feel like we're better than them. But I'm going to tell you something this morning. Self-love never pleases God, ever. Self-love never pleases God. Pride is always the source of that. Pride in our heart is what motivates us to love ourselves over everybody else. And pride is one of the main categories John talks about in 1 John, the pride of life. Our own selfishness taints our love for God and for others. Our own selfishness, our own self-preservation, our own desire to love ourselves and do for us only. And when we pursue our own love interests, and our self-preservation, and our personal rights, we diminish our love for Christ. We really do. So, let's be followers of Christ. Let's be followers of Jesus who show the world the love of Jesus. We need to quit worrying 
and preserving our comfort zone. Sometimes it's like, well, I, I don't want to do that, God, because it's outside my comfort zone. That should never be an answer to God. We can do great things for Christ if we let go of our self-love. Let go of it and let God dictate what your life is going to be used for. Let him <clears throat> use you like he used these evil men, but in a better way. Because if you want some hope, if you want real hope, hope for any situation starts first by letting go of your self-love. Letting go of what you think is right or what you want and grabbing a hold of Christ. These men didn't do it. Judas didn't do it. And we see the hatred of their, these self-righteous men work evil against Jesus, but God uses it for good. Now, let's see the good thing that happened. Let's look at the love of Jesus that leads to the eternal reward here in verses 3 through 9. Let me read it again. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they begin to scold her. Then Judas, oops, sorry, missed a spot. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you and you can do what is good for them whenever you want but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's a beautiful story. Beautiful story. It's in, it's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I mean, in John. There's another anointing by another lady in Galilee in the chapter 7 of Luke. Not the same woman. Different, different event. But this is on Saturday night. This is the flashback I was talking about. This is back on Saturday night before the triumphal entry, which is their Sabbath. So that night, Simon, a healed leper, he was probably healed by Jesus. It's a good assumption to make that. And he hosted a banquet in Bethany for Jesus. Bethany's also the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And everybody knows who Lazarus is, right? The guy Jesus raised from the dead. Don't get him confused with the poor man. <clears throat> so they're all in that town, and it's a banquet. It's a, it's a shindig. I'm telling you, he, he probably put on a lot of food and Lazarus, Martha, and Mary are attending the banquet, and many have come to celebrate Jesus. Jesus. And then a woman. Now, why Matthew and Mark leaves it ambiguous as it's just a woman? I think part of it was because their Gospels were written early, like 50s. And it was still a very tense time in terms of persecution. But John identifies her because he's writing his Gospel somewhere around 85 A.D., and he's writing it probably somewhere not, not in Jerusalem. So it's, it's not going to get them in hot water by naming her. But it is Mary, Lazarus' sister, the one who sat at the feet of Jesus and, and listened to his teachings. The one that Martha complained about not helping. And Jesus said, no, she's made the right choice. Jesus honored her decision to listen. 
instead of fretting over domestic matters. And now her listening, I believe, what she heard the Savior say is turned into action. And I want you to imagine how this moment came about that Mary had this jar of nard, this jar of perfume. She had purchased this 300 denarii jar or vial of perfume for some reason. Now, it could have been premeditated. She could have thought about that and done it. But 300 denarii is a lot of money. A denarii in, in Roman times in those times was one day's wage. If you worked all day, more likely six to six, not our normal nine to five kind of thing or eight to five, you worked six to six, you got one denarii, and it was a day's wage. Well, in today's dollars, that equates to probably about $36,000. And that's an eight-hour work day at $15 an hour. But she, for some reason, had this money and, and decided to buy this vial of perfume. Maybe she bought it for herself. Some people believe that the jar of the neck was stretched to a very small spout that would allow one drop at a time out. You couldn't pour it. She might have bought it for herself, put a little here, put a little there. I don't know. But it was expensive. The nard is from a root that grew in northern India. The alabaster is just as expensive, really. It's from Egypt, from some marble there. So this, this thing came from two extremes together. She purchased it with 300 denarii. Now, why she really bought it, we can only assume, and I'm kind of speculating and using my spiritual imagination up here, but she knew, too, that this banquet was going to happen at some point. Maybe she didn't buy it for the banquet, but when there was a talk of having a banquet for Jesus because he was coming to town the, the Sabbath before Passover, hey, I know what I can do with this bottle of perfume. So she hoped for a chance to give it to him. Or I think she really hoped for a chance to pour it on him. But she might have just given it to him if she'd have been afforded another opportunity because remember what he had done for her family. Her brother had been dead four days, and Jesus raised him from the dead. So she saw an opportunity. And when, the way they eat is not the way we eat. We don't, they didn't sit in chairs like we do. They sat on pillows on the floor. Their table was probably about that high, and they reclined, sometimes against each other, sometimes against another big pillow or something. And so he's reclining. His feet are behind him a little bit, like we would sit down. So she was able to come up behind him. I don't think she snuck up on Jesus. I don't think anybody's ever snuck up on Jesus. So she saw an opportunity. And meals like this last for a long time. They'll sit at the table, talk, talk, eat a little bit, talk, talk. It's kind of like a family reunion meal. And she decided, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give it to him, and I'm, I'm really, I'm going to pour it on him. <clears throat> so she breaks that neck off so that the bottle will pour better. She breaks the neck off and pours it on Jesus in an act of worship, an act of worship because of gratitude. She knew that something was about to happen to Jesus. I think she had paid attention to his teachings and what he'd been telling the disciples who were still scratching their head. I think Mary was beginning to get it. Something was about to happen to Jesus. Maybe she knew it was going to be a death and a burial, but she wasn't sure why or what. So once she made her decision, she approached carefully, broke off the jar neck, and poured it out on Jesus' head. I mean, and it probably flowed. And she committed it all to Jesus. She couldn't put the, 
the genie back in the bottle in a sense. She couldn't put a cork in that bottle. She couldn't stop it. She poured it all. She committed all of it to Jesus. <clears throat> and it covered him from head to feet. John says it went on her, his feet as well. It was a pure perfume, not just nard diluted. It was pure. So it was very, very, very aromatic and filled the whole room. Soon everybody knew what had happened. Somebody has opened a jar of nard. I mean, wow. Somebody has opened a bottle here. And they all smelled the aroma of her worship. But <laughs> some, according to Mark, the disciples, according to Matthew, and Judas, according to John, these greedy and self-righteous men scolded her with some sort of fake attempt at noble benevolence. You know, they were like, oh, Jesus. And so Jesus turned and scolded them. I mean, he called her actions noble, valuable, worthy, honoring, and worshipful. And Jesus makes a point about the time of his departure, not about the poor. Some people say, well, this is, Jesus doesn't care about the poor. Oh, that's not true. Jesus cares very much about the poor, and he showed it many times. But as Ecclesiastes 3 will tell you, there's a time for everything under heaven, under the sun. He makes a reference even back to Deuteronomy 15, 11 through 12, where, where Moses says, you have to honor God with your treasures, with your first fruits, with your sacrifices, but you also need to help the poor, but you will always have the poor to help. Make sure you're giving to God what is God's. So this was the time to honor the Son of God. And Jesus even further interprets her action, anointing his body for burial, which is a key part of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel I preach to you, that Jesus Christ was crucified according to the scriptures. He was buried and then rose three days later according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. She's anointing his body for the gospel. Did she know he was about to die? We don't really know. Doesn't say. Did her worship stem from that fact? I, we just don't know. But I think God ordained her act of worship from a heart of gratitude right then. He ordained it to be a moment where Jesus could declare, she or, she's anointing my body for burial. And Jesus even confirms it by honoring her. Her act is memorialized forever by his word. And the Bible fulfills this. Every copy of God's word has this story three times in it. She is remembered as a woman who gave a very expensive act of worship to the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. She left a legacy of worship right there all over Jesus' head and feet and body. But the point here that Jesus is making is not about who her, who her, what her name is, although we know, and it's not about the expense of the perfume. As I've said many times, it's always about the heart. Jesus is pointing at her heart. Just her heart. A heart of worship. A heart of worship that declares, this is my Savior, and I will give everything I have to him. Her gift came from two extreme locations of the world and honored the creator of the world because she loved Jesus immensely and selflessly. She made a sacrifice. And sacrifice, what is that? Well, it's, it's giving more than deemed necessary. 
Um, that's kind of our definition, or it's surrendering all claims and rights to some valuable thing or some valuable position. But what motivates such sacrifice? Well, I know in the military, as I spent 25 years there, it was duty. We signed the bottom line. We agreed to carry out our duty. Some people, it's just selfless commitments. They're just committed to somebody for the sake of that. Someone is for hopeful results. They'll sacrifice hoping something turns out better. And the other reason people sacrifice like that is because they love. They love. And really, only selfless love can love like this. Selfless love gives like this. Remember the widow's might. She put in those two coins that couldn't buy anything. But she gave everything she had. And when I think about this story of Mary, I think about missionaries who have lost their lives because of the gospel. Because they went places where the gospel was needed. Jim Elliott's one of those I think of. And then there's been believers martyred since Christ rose from the dead. I mean, Stephen was the first. James was the first apostle that was martyred. But I think we need to kind of drill down a little more with why did Mary do this? Why did Mary love Jesus so much? Yes, he, he raised Lazarus from the dead. But she, like Martha and Lazarus, knew that he was eventually going to die again. I think we need to look at the parable in Luke chapter 7 that Jesus tells Simon the Pharisee after he's just been anointed by this other woman. Here's the parable Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, verses 41 through 47. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Well, Simon the Pharisee answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water to wash my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. It's about forgiveness. And by the way, none of us have been forgiven little, okay? All of us have been forgiven much. Sometimes we just don't realize it, and that's the point Jesus is making to Simon the Pharisee here. See, see it now from a, a sober perspective about forgiveness, about our hearts realizing how much we have been forgiven. Our sin against God cost Jesus his life. We should be giving and loving and worshipful about that. And only when we truly realize how much we are forgiven can our hearts truly worship Jesus. Only when we truly realize how much we have been forgiven. There is none of us that have done enough righteous acts to earn our way to heaven. That's when we can truly worship Jesus. When we come here on Sunday mornings, I hope we come with the attitude of, I have been forgiven much. I have been forgiven many debts. We have material blessings. We have a happy life. You, have a, you may have a comfortable career, 
but it can't lead you to true worship. I've had all those things, and I can come in on a Sunday morning and feel like I don't owe God anything because I'm focused on those things. What are we saving up to honor Jesus with? What are we keeping to, to use to honor Jesus? How much of our time, talent, and treasures are we willing to give to Jesus for what he's done for us? Will our love for Jesus perfume an entire room? I hope so. I should. How would anyone know you love Jesus? That's the perfume we're wanting people to smell. How would they know that you love Jesus? Because Jesus gives us an old command with a new standard. Love one another as I have loved you. That's a big step. Used to it was just love one another. Well, that could be any variation. But love them like Jesus loved you. And Jesus gave his life for you. And that love only comes by realizing how much we're forgiven. How much we're forgiven. We have been forgiven lots. God made sinless Jesus to be our sin so that we might be God's children. God calls us to love like Jesus did, and I hope you believe that. Humanity tries to justify their sins and their actions with extravagant buildings. I've been into some cathedrals in Europe. It's amazing. The artwork, the decor, all these other items that they put out there to supposedly honor Jesus, trying to imitate Mary's vial of perfume. But that doesn't work. No amount of decor or extravagant art will make anyone worthy of heaven. No matter how much you, you pretty it up. If we think a beautiful building or a hefty financial gift makes people come to Jesus, we're wrong. That's not what happens. Only people speaking the gospel by the Holy Spirit draws the lost soul to Jesus. That's my job and your job. That's what we're left here for. Only by speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit can lost souls find Jesus. No matter how big our building is, no matter how much we pour into the community, if we're not speaking the gospel, we are not doing the mission. So we need to give up our agenda, whatever it is. Our, our own schedule, our own calendar is so full, we can't do anything for Christ because we just don't have any time. We need to give up sometimes our attitudes about how we should give for Christ. And we need to reach out to others like Jesus would. To love them like Jesus would. We need to stop loving our life and love Jesus sacrificially. You can do that in a lot of ways. You can come to prayer meeting on Tuesday. You can meet here to worship with us on a regular basis. You can serve where we need help in the church serving. But I want you to give off an aroma of eternal life. Give off that aroma. People need to hear this story. They need to know how much God has done for them if they'll just accept it. We've been forgiven much. We need to love much. And loving others is loving Jesus. And we love them because he first loved us and died for us and gave himself for us. And the heart of worship is a heart that loves Jesus enough to tell others about him. Otherwise, we're being stingy. We're just holding back. In summary, 
I want you to know that Mark wrote it this way to draw a comparison between all the hatred swirling around outside the walls of that house and the love that was there demonstrated by Mary's sacrifice. While the hate swirled around outside, Mary was loving on the inside of that house. Hopefully you'll do the same thing. And I hope you see the contrast here. Because hatred, it leads to misery, it leads to loss, and it leads to death. Judas, Judas hung himself because of unreconciled guilt. He had been three years with the Savior and never knew how to reconcile his guilt with God. The Jewish leaders, they lost everything, their whole position. By A.D. 70, there's no sacrificial system. There is no Jewish religion in Jerusalem anymore. They lost it all. But Mary, she found joy in her giving. She found peace in her heart, and she found eternal life in her Savior, Jesus Christ. And see, forgiveness is what every human heart needs. Some of them don't know they need that. Some of them don't realize it, and that's why we need to talk to them about it. Because we needed it, they need it. And that's what every human heart needs right now. And if we don't find it in Jesus, we never find it. So let's pray that our hearts will love Jesus more. That the aroma of our love for Jesus will fill a room. That people will be able to perceive that there's something different about you. And they want to know. And the Holy Spirit can use that to open a door for gospel presentation and gospel conversations. Let's pray now in a time of pastoral prayer. If you want to come to the the front and pray, come on. We'll have a time of silent prayer, and then I'll close us out. Let's pray.